Just in time for Halloween, we've got a look at the business of horror movies and just how scary profitable they are. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, joining me today from the Great White North. It's Motley Fool Senior and Jim Gillies. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. You don't actually have snow on the ground up in Canada, though. Of course not. No. no. Okay. Sixty-eight degrees yesterday. Okay. You, you like it? You like how I translated to Fahrenheit for your American types? I did. I appreciate. Yeah, it. You're welcome. I mean, never mind the listeners. I appreciate it for me. <laughs> don't make me do the math of Celsius. Before we get to earnings season, I, I, I do. You know, we we should talk about the the consumer price index numbers that came out this morning, and this is this is. Today is a nice reminder that volatility goes in both directions. A lot of times, when the word volatility is thrown down, is thrown around, it is it is meant to indicate uh, that stocks are going down. Mm-hmm. There's usually a negative connotation with the word volatility. Today, we're seeing volatility uh, with an upswing because when the market opened, uh, Wall Street was digesting the fact that the the CPI. Came in slightly higher than expected. Inflation month over month up 0.4%, which is 0.1% higher than expected. And yes, of course, there was some freak out about that. But then we, you know, we had this reversal. Maybe it's tied to the the notes that came out from the Fed meeting that gave some people um, hope that uh, interest rate hikes might slow down a little bit in the future. Um, what do you? What goes through your mind when you see this type of activity? Because what goes through my mind is, I'm glad I'm someone who focuses on businesses and really doesn't try to spend a lot of energy understanding why volatility happens like this. My big regret today is I, I have a thing where I only buy on, uh, I only buy basically on down days. Kind of a, it's a discipline I adopted a few years ago. Um, I kind of regret not getting my buy orders in this morning. <laughs> and I've been doing a lot of buying over the past three months, but that's a whole other story. Uh, just, just on that note, that is the, the, you know, the the stat of the week for me personally was a stat, a stat I saw yesterday, which is that 2022 has had more down days in the market than any year for the market since 1974. And I just thought, which was oh, a pretty crap year, actually. Yes, it was. <laughs> but I just thought, okay, it's not just that it feels like it's a bad year; it really is a bad year. I believe this is the third worst three quarters of a year behind only 2008. Something happened that year, and I believe it was 1931. I might be off on that one. Regardless. I was not alive for it. So, uh, but you know that, that that 2022 is truly a special year. I penned a column in Hidden Gems Canada uh, a week or two ago, where I basically called it 2022, the year in which no one made money, and I went through down all the asset classes. And trust me, no one's made money this year. This is a bad year, which is why I think you should be, you know, be more of a buyer than a seller this year. You should be excited about this. Uh, but you ask what goes through my mind when we see things like what happened this morning happen. 
And truthfully, what goes through my mind is uh, the old Charlie Brown cartoon with Lucy pulling the football away, you know, the for the last, I don't know, six months or whatever, as uh, as central banks have really geared up with the interest rate hikes and they've promised ever more hikes as far as the eye can see. Uh, and people have kind of freaked out uh, every time that people start talking, well, maybe maybe the Fed's going to pivot, maybe the Fed's going to stop, uh, maybe inflation will be moderating. Then the inflation report shows up, oh, worse than expected, sell everything, panic. And I'm like, why do you keep doing this, Mr. Market? You know, you, you know she's going to pull the football, okay? You, you like, like, stop paying attention to this. Uh, start looking at what actual businesses, to your point, Chris, what are actual businesses doing? Are things going to be not great for the upcoming earnings season? Maybe. Maybe. Uh, we've got a couple of already reported. Winmark reported yesterday. Thought it was perfectly acceptable numbers there, frankly. But, um, you know, but the, the stock market kind of looked at it and went, meh, whatever. You know, there there will be there will be some earnings misses. There will be some, um, especially companies that have variable rate debt. I imagine probably had a worse quarter than uh, than they probably thought at the start of the quarter. Uh, but you know, by and large, I'm I'm just interested in, in, in what the businesses actually post. This uh, what was it? I think it was. I think the market was up in the pre market until about eight thirty. I think it was up three or four hundred points on the Dow. The hot inflation report comes out, completely reverses, goes down to minus 250. I think it opened down four or 500 points on the Dow. As we speak right now, it's up about 600 points. You said you like volatility. You got it today. And a lot of it, it's, it's, it's the old, to, to get all Shakespeare on you, it's, it's sound and fury signifying nothing, frankly, in the, in the long term. So, Friday morning, we're going to get some of the big banks reporting earnings, which for me and a lot of other people signifies the start of earnings season in earnest. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what company you are most curious to hear from and what in particular you're curious to hear from them. I'll just say from my standpoint, it's Target and mm -hmm. their inventory levels. Uh, I think I think a lot of people, whether they are shareholders of Target or not, are going to be watching that. But the, that's the one for me. What about for you? I mean, yours is going to sound so much smarter than mine will be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like okay, I, I, I have, I have, a, I, I'm not the world's biggest Target fan, mainly because they. To, to go back and look at how when they tried to come into Canada, how badly they screwed that up was truly tr if, if I thought there were intelligent suits in that in that C-suite uh, that was dissipated by that complete screw up. But that's a story for another day. I think if I were in your shoes, I'd be bitter. I I, I would not be well, a fan of Target. Well, I get I'm not that. bitter. I just I'm just like like you guys run a successful retail chain, right? How can I go in? I, this is like ten years ago. I went in to buy my kid some new winter boots. There were three boots, not three types of boots I could pick from. With like three, there were three boots <laughs> on the on the like their inventory. I'm like. Why did he go down this road? Anyway, that's a whole other thing. Um, I, I am interested in a lot of uh, a, a lot of companies, a lot of uh, you know, occasionally strange companies. I already mentioned Winmark once. Um, you know, you talk about the big banks are reporting. I'm frankly more interested in small banks um, because I think there's real opportunity there. Of course, uh, the small banks have all been shredded. 
you know, which is interesting in a rising rate environment when, you know, uh, I think we've had this conversation before, you know, the rates go up a percentage point, all their lending goes up a percentage point, but what they pay you on your deposit account or your CDs or whatever goes up, you know, 20 basis points. I'm like, eh. That's cool. Uh, if you own the bank, you know, I could point you at a little company. Uh, it's a bank called TFS Financial, uh, ticker symbol TFSL. They're currently paying a near 9% dividend yield. Uh, this is a plain vanilla, uh, and it's not going away. This is a plain vanilla, um, you know, mortgage lender out of Cleveland, Ohio. Like, you know, I mean, who, who doesn't get excited about plain, oh, and with an adjunct office in Florida? I mean, who's not excited about that, right? Um, but not, you know, and this, it, it's nudging along its 52 week low. And you know, I, I personally think things will be probably fine there. Um, another company, like, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of signaling. And of course, you know, I mean, one of the biggest signals that's usually irrelevant is, um, but people follow it is insider sales. Um, you know, that's the cliche, insiders may sell for many reasons. But, um, and so, you know, there's been a lot of insider selling over the past couple of years, especially from the, you know, shall we say the exuberantly valued uh, technology area. Um, kind of irrelevant to me most of the time, but um, I, I, am, I am a fan of, of other signals. So there's a company called MedPace Holdings. It's a contract research organization for basically uh, drug discovery, compound discovery, uh, medical device discovery. They basically run the tests for the big pharma companies. Uh, run by a founding CEO, so it's a very foolish kind of uh, story. You know, this is a company that uh, in um, the first half of 2022, went out and bought 14% of their shares on the open market, 13 or 14%. Uh, they basically spent every penny in free cash flow they've made since the end of 2018 buying back their own stock. At, and, and they have a very clear, there's a very clear price level they feel comfortable buying up to, probably about 18 times cash flow. And so that was signal number one. That was in the first half of, of, of 2022. We obviously don't know what they've done in Q3 when they report all look. But the next signal that I found interesting was, uh, you know, if insider selling is often irrelevant, we like to pay attention to insider buying, right? I mean, you know, again, here, here is the CEO of a company. Here's the CEO of a company that founded the company 30 years ago, has been CEO since founding the company, remains CEO today, was already the largest shareholder of the company, I think had about a 19 or 20% stake, okay? In July, they put out a filing that basically said, "Hey, we're gonna buy, we're gonna buy personally." You know, Dr. August Trendle, the CEO and founder, and and the vehicle that he controls, where he holds all of his shares or most of his shares. Um, at this price, we're gonna buy a million shares. Well, at the end, of, you know, and which you know, okay, what what is what does a million shares mean? Well, okay. When, when the company has 31 million shares outstanding and he's already the largest shareholder, buying a million shares, which by the way, he completed in September to the costing himself $155 million. Like, I don't know how much more you need to be hit over the head about, you know, the signal coming out of the company is we think the business is fine. Thank you for the cheap price. We've bought back 14% of ourselves. And oh, by the way, the CEO, already the largest shareholder, is going to increase his holdings by 15% to the tune of $155 million. Now, I don't know about you, Chris. I don't have $155 million lying around that I can go you know, add to my holdings. But I will flat out state, um, 
you know, you don't have to hit me over the head too many times. Uh, I assure you, I've bought, I've, I've been buying alongside uh, MedPace in the last couple of months as these prices have been available. And again, I, I've recommended the stock a few times. I, I, I've owned it before. I've followed it for a number of years. So I, I felt reasonably comfortable adding. But again, as everybody, as the market is tanking, as people get upset, as they freak out, buy good businesses at good prices. And when, the, when literally the people who are closest to it are screaming at you, we think this is a good price. I mean, it's just, it's just an added bonus. So that's where that's, I'm interested to see what they actually post this quarter. It's always nice when the signals are clear. Jim Gillies, great talking to you. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. This weekend, Halloween Ends will be released in theaters. The franchise includes more than a dozen films, and maybe you've wondered, why do they keep making them? Isn't Michael Myers dead at this point? One reason is that the Halloween movie franchise has grossed over half a billion dollars worldwide. Ricky Mulvey talked with Katie Piper about the economics of horror movies and why they're holding up at the box office. So we're well into spooky season, but we got we got to talk about the money part of this. So, uh, Katie, why do horror flicks often have the best return on investment compared to other types of movies going to theaters? Great question, and honestly, some of it goes back to just even the history of the horror industry in uh, U.S. production. They were always the lowest budget films that had the most affordable cast. You were usually using people who were no names or up and comers, or stars kind of on their descent, uh, downwardly mobile from the A and B lists. And that tradition has actually become sort of one of the markers of a lot of horror films today. People expect to see faces that they wouldn't normally see or faces that they haven't seen in a while in a horror film. So it keeps the cost down when you don't have to pay the the talent quite so much. Additionally, they're not having to license a lot of expensive IP. This is not Marvel. This is not Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings where you have to pay a lot. And the effects if they're saving money on their cast, they can pour their money into the effects, but they don't always have to go big and bold. They can rely on practical effects or very strategic uses of CGI. So overall, they're just a cheaper production to make. I hope we get more practical effects. It's kind of the strategy of uh, Quentin Tarantino in the 90s. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Movie studios often worry about how their um, films are going to translate around the world, and that's that's a, a particularly true with horror movies, where the the different regulations and different expectations of what's allowed to be on screen uh, affects what these studios put out. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting because you know when I talk with my my film colleagues who who focus on international production, they're always talking about how you know in Europe the the ratings uh, guidelines usually focus more on how violent and gory is it, and they care a lot less about sex on screen. Whereas in America, it's it's very uh, very much the opposite. So you're frequently less likely to see a horror film that focuses on just brutal gore left and right. You're not going to see a purge coming out of Europe, but you might see something that's much more psychologically creepy, uh, like the Swedish let the right one in. Or on the flip side, you know, you have uh, 
political cultural regulations like in China where ghosts are not allowed to be shown on screen um, because it's seen as a, a religious gesture. Uh, mm. But they offshore the production and have been for decades in, in Chinese cultural centers like Hong Kong and Taiwan, where uh, the reach of the government historically, although it's been changing recently, hasn't uh, infiltrated the film and industry quite as much. And then I guess, you know, what I would follow up to that is just to say that there's this constant flow back and forth internationally around all of that. As U.S. consumers, we are very used to kind of importing those films, although we may not have the full cultural context for some of the stories that are in them. And so some of the, the most viral horror films of the last two decades, like Babadook, uh, Train to Busan, you know, these are ones that are coming from Sweden, Korea, uh, Devil's Backbone, you know, early del Toro from Mexico. So international import of horror films into the U.S. is really important. And then there's the flip side of Americans trying to remake popular uh, international films, particularly uh, Japanese films like The Grudge and The Ring. Uh, so that, that conversation is really important. To your earlier point, the, like the Vince Vaughn, did you ever see the Vince Vaughn movie Freaky? Yes. <laughs> Where it's just, that to me is just one of those like gory, like the goriest of gory movies. And I, I didn't particularly enjoy it because of that. And that's one where I would assume Europe would have some problems with that movie. Yeah. Can, yeah. Or ratings. I mean, I would say all of this is moving to a more China accepted because there's a lot of government policies at play there recently. But in general, we're moving to a much more mainstream, mainlined consumption um, where a lot of these uh, cultural aesthetics that have been uh, created by the industry regulations are, are converging. But yes, absolutely. I think there's also uh, in the horror community, a really big interest in like, is this a domestic horror film? And therefore I know what kind of genre attributes to look for versus like, is this an East Asian horror film or European Asian or horror film? Because then I'm going to know there are other genre elements at play. You've got your Marvels, you've got your James Bonds that do particularly well at the box office, but horror movies are also in that category. Why do you think the horror movies, even in this, this era where everybody's streaming everything and you're competing against your TV and your iPad, why have horror movies held up well at the box office? There's so many reasons for it. I think, you know, the first is just it's a transactional relationship. I know what I'm getting when I go to a theater and I pay for a horror movie admission. Like I'm paying to get a good scare. So in that way, it's a lot more certain than if you sign up to go watch a prestige film or an Oscar bait film and you're like, am I gonna enjoy this? I don't know. Is this an eat my vegetables film? quite possibly. So I think particularly when times are difficult and we see this frequently, you know, during recessions or uh, you know, political uncertainty in the world, the genres of films like horror films where it's it's a steady transactional relationship for the consumer actually fare a lot better. And then specifically with horror, there are certain jump scares, certain elements of things that'll be on screen, the suspense, the uh, impact of the music that you're not going to get on a home screen or your phone screen. And so I think even during the pandemic, people were much more willing to mask up earlier on and go to a theater because they just wanted that good jump, that good scare that they just weren't going to get at home. I think you could make a similar argument though for for comedies, right? Like there's there's a there's a huge difference between watching a good comedy movie in in a, in a movie theater or let's say outside at, at a drive-in, but it doesn't seem like that logic holds up for comedies as as it does for horror movies. 
That's a really uh, interesting point because I think this is where you have to really think about what is the cinematic experience of it. And we're so used to consuming comedy on television, you know, The Office, Parks and Rec. Like we are so used to to small screen comedy now, and it doesn't rely on, you know the sound systems, the widescreen, the dark room, it does rely on consuming communally, but we've been able to do that. We've been able to move comedy community watching to our homes. We watch with our family, we get online and we talk with our friends. So we're able to replicate some of that community at home. You're not going to be able to replicate a theater anywhere else except the theater, no matter how great your home sound system is. Yeah. So, as we're, as we're getting towards spooky season, no, we're already in spooky season. <laughs> Do you have any, uh, any favorite horror movies for, for spooky season coming up on Halloween? Well, you know, one that I have to admit, I actually personally have not watched yet, but is on my you know list for this weekend to go see is Smile. Uh, oh, yeah. So it's had an incredible viral marketing campaign that also, if I put on my other hat, uh, hat away from film as a creative marketer, I deeply appreciate. There's something incredibly uncanny about the images that they are using in their marketing campaign. The the way. Th- the woman in most of the marketing materials uh, smiles that uh, very creepy grimace and it looks directly at you. That's something that the the director actually said he cared about really mastering a lot. And uh, from a marketing perspective, direct eye contact in ads is always really very productive. It works really well in marketing. And so when I saw them start to do it with this film campaign, I was like, wow, someone knows their marketing. And it just interrupts your daily life. You know, you're you're scanning through and then suddenly you see the grin of a predatory animal staring right back at you. It's going to jump you out of your everyday context and and slip you into that uncanny valley. So out of appreciation for their marketing campaign, I'm going to go see that this weekend. Go go check out Smile. Yeah. And they were also able to save on marketing costs by just having Having, they're just having actors uh, do the creepy smile like uh, at baseball games and sporting yes. events where they're where they're in in the camera. Yes, absolutely. Which I also appreciate. Again, in the history of marketing, a horror film was the first viral marketing campaign, the Blair Witch Project, to oh. ever started. So there's a, a long tradition of of trying to find these these fun moments of of viral marketing in the genre. Katie Piper, thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.